Mike, I so appreciate that prayer, in particular the prayer that the words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees would be through the work of the Spirit this morning as active in our hearts as it was, hopefully, in, in these hearts. I'm, I'm grateful, too, that the kids did the song that they did for us, not just because, uh, you know, I could barely make my way through those hand motions, although I'm going to go back and watch the recording. I think I clapped at the wrong time every opportunity I had. But I also appreciate the, the one part that Judy would highlight with the kids each time. I think her favorite hand motion from that uh, was, uh, we're going to look the world in the eye. And she kept getting down. And so I got down with Brady over there on the side. I'm going to look you in the eye. Because it, it does highlight something that, that Jace, um, well, that's Zach, but Jace was over there. Jace is in the back there. Say hi, Jace. There we go. Thanks, Jace. Um, yeah, so it is an active place on the stage today. <laughs> oh, thanks, bud. I appreciate that. It's good to be known. You can't make it 20 minutes without coughing. Dad, here's water. The, uh, yeah, so the, the point of it that, that I, oh, that's right. I I'll highlighted Jace. Um, he said, Dad, boy, I'm online after Roe v. Wade here is has been struck down, and I did not realize how unpopular I was as a Christian. Like, it was easy in some ways to be able to feel like, oh, I'm part of this culture, we kind of like these groups, or I like Disney, you like Disney, and maybe we're not so fond of Disney right now. But all of a sudden, this moment hits, and he sees the line in the sand that's been there, but it's just, everything's now a lot more clarified. And he's saying, wow, Dad, a lot of people hate this decision. It seems like a lot of people hate us. And uh, I told him that, but it's not that big a deal. <laughs> I didn't, because he's right, isn't he? There's a certain sense that moments like this in our country's history have really um, given us an opportunity as believers to say, yeah, we feel at times our, our kinship in our country. We feel a sense of our shared citizenship or our our mutual admiration for similar values, but this isn't one of those moments at all. This is a moment where we need to look the world in the eye and say, my rules are so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my rules cannot do. Sadly, I think that's been the message of Christianity for too long. Because you got to understand, in, in the United States, really across the world, there's no such thing as an unbeliever. Everybody holds to religious principles. Not that they may even ascribe them to God, and certainly many would reject Christianity, reject the Bible, but every religion essentially tries to think about what are the problems of the world, what's a diagnosis of those problems, and what's the salvation that needs to be had in order for us to get away from those problems. And there's some sort of teaching, some sort of manual, some sort of, uh, you know, doctrine that needs to be put forward. Guys, those are the principles of religions, right? Christianity is one of them. But part of the reason that we feel ourselves bumping up against the world so much is that anti-Christian religions are becoming more and more popular. We talked about this with the, the Jesus walking on the water, right? The world's religion is row harder. We as Christians say, no, you, you need Christ. It's, it's not going to be you rowing against the waves of this world that's going to save you. It's Jesus that will save you. That's essentially 
why Jesus was so upset with the Pharisees in the same way that Isaiah was communicating a message of displeasure to the people of Israel in his day. It's because in every culture, in every generation, anytime uh, a society or a people group or an individual says, I don't need you, God, because I've got my rules, God's like, oh man, I'm not for you. That arrogance, that pride is something I oppose. And you've got to completely dismantle that way of thinking. If Christianity becomes just another opposing set of rules, then your rules are not so big and so strong and so mighty because there's a million things your rules cannot do. Clap, clap. (laughs) What Jesus is pointing out is the same thing. Well, sorry, Mark is pointing out here in chapter 7. It's really the same thing we've been hearing. That it's not just the disciples going out on mission. It's them coming back to Jesus that's the essence of their Christianity. It's not the rowing harder against the waves of the world. It's the Jesus being in the boat. It's him or it's nothing, guys. And if we reduce Christianity down to we destroyed you by making your argument and your rules seem less significant than our arguments and our rules, then, yeah, maybe you win the argument, but you lose everything that God's trying to establish through his kingdom on the planet. Because if we do something without Christ, we're not Christians. It's like, if we're not getting the heart of that through Mark so far, where have we been? We've been in six chapters. It's about Jesus. Let's just see one more time how it's about Jesus here, starting in chapter seven. Uh, if you see in your bulletin, we kind of are asking this question, how did Jesus engage uh, uh, his, this rule-entrenched culture that he was entering into? And rather than us saying like, okay, yeah, so those are the Pharisees, and man, they're so different than us. I'm just trying to say from the outset, guys, they had their rules. Everybody's got their rules. Let's just kind of see what Jesus does to a rule-entrenched culture so that we hopefully don't try to substitute better rules, but we substitute Christ. Make sense? So uh, here's context, is Jesus is engaging this culture. It says, when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, by the way, in Mark Every time we see Jerusalem show up, not the source of joy and peace and humility, all right? Jerusalem across the board for Mark is going to be sort of synonymous with opposition and arrogance. So we've got these guys coming from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And unless you think of this as COVID and hand sanitizer and stuff, this is nothing to do with hygiene. This is all about whether you're pleasing God through the way that you're ceremonially washing your hands. Remember, this is just a culture that lived in the dirt, and water was kind of there, but that's, that's not what the Pharisees are after. Mark probably, remember I said last week, this is probably Peter behind Mark's voice. Now we understand a little bit more of the audience he's writing to from verse 3, because pretty obvious these aren't Jews, because if these were Jews that he was mainly writing to, verse 3 would not be necessary at all. But because Peter, or Mark through Peter, man, no, Peter through Mark is writing to Gentiles, what we see in verse 3 is an explanation for, here's about, let me tell you about the Pharisees. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, and defining properly, he says, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, just to pause for a minute, what he means by saying that is he's contrasting that with the Old Testament law. There are a few times in the Old Testament that if you got bloody for a variety of reasons, if you got unclean ceremonially for un- a bunch of reasons, you would have to wash. The tabernacle and then the temple had outer court like furniture, and some of it was ceremonially, uh, you know, for the purpose of washing. 
So there'd be a lot of blood, and there would be a big laver out there, laver, however you want to pronounce it, big basin, and uh, they would do a lot of washing in it. It was somewhat to get the blood off, but it was also somewhat to represent that I can't come before God sinful. And so the Pharisees, had the, the, the Old Testament law had these ways that you had to wash, but then the Pharisees said, you don't understand this enough, so we need to add to it. And we've got to understand, there are some laws in the Old Testament that really did need a little bit of explanation, right? Don't kill. A lot of stuff I kill. I use hand sanitizer, and I kill. I ate something, and that had to be killed. And some people in the law get killed. So do not kill needs a little bit of explanation, right? So the good thing is the law provides that explanation. The Pharisees, though, at times didn't feel like the explanations went far enough. And so Mark is saying this washing that the Pharisees were doing wasn't according to Old Testament law. It was according to all the other sort of blanket upon blanket upon blanket so that by the end of the day, you sort of lost all the contours of the actual Old Testament law. All you saw were the traditions of the elders and just the contour of their blankets covering everything. But... When they come from the marketplace, they wash. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels. And I'm not sure if Sophia was pausing because of the lunacy of it, but boy, that's the way I read it the first time. And their dining couches. So there's a lot of washing going on in the tradition of the elders, according to the Pharisees, and they do it, and the disciples don't. Now, The reason I'm kind of trying to introduce the passage according to this idea of rules and laws is because the rules and the laws weren't just a way of pleasing God. They were a way, actually, of hiding from God. And Paul diagnoses it this way in Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3. Just listen to the way Paul looks back at the same culture and tries to say how futile it is in pleasing God. He says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will then be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are now a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What's he saying? He's saying the world often gets it half right. There's so many ways in which the world kind of either through, like in the United States, under the influence of a lot of Christian teaching, even though they'd abandoned the Christian teaching, would be able to say, but something about this feels right. Like uh, we, we watched this Moon Knight show and there's a spot in it that I was like, ah, the pro-life message from Disney, which was amazing because uh, he was talking about murdering children. And the guy said, I think I'd draw the line at child murder. That didn't seem a controversial point. The idea of murdering kids doesn't seem like anything that we in the United States would really question. And yet, if you went back to a whole mess of cultures in the past, killing kids was totally acceptable. Getting rid of the weak, getting rid of the undesirable. That was exactly what so many pagan cultures would practice. It's condemned in the Old Testament, throwing your kids into the fire for a sacrifice. You'd see in a lot of different cultures this idea that if you're undesirable, you're, you're disposable. Well, why is it that in the United States we would be able to say child murder is probably not all right? Well, one, it's because God's values have influenced our national values. 
But it's also because what Paul's saying is that there's something of the work of the law through the nature of God in us that sort of echoes through what he calls our conscience. And so even if somebody hasn't distinctly heard the law or been taught through the law, there's echoes of the law that just reside within the nature of humanity. And that's, that's a really good thing. Listen, he continues on in, in Romans chapter 3. He's not just saying that this law is there. He's saying it's, it's a tricky relationship we have with the law. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And you remember when we were in Romans, that was just the essence of chapter three. And it was what was going to launch us into everything. Four and five, the whole celebration of justification. Chapter six through eight, how do we relate as sinners? Nine through uh, 11, what's going to happen then to God's people? And then everything about how we're supposed to live from 12 on. It's all related to this point. How do you get righteous? It's not through rules. It's not through imitation. It's, It's through a gift of righteousness that we didn't deserve, that we received simply by saying, I believe what you're saying. Pow, that's it. That's all it takes. Faith like that is the fundamental difference between why we think we're Christians, not because our rules are better, but because we have a Savior who's come to us simply by us acknowledging his gift to us. It's a a profound system. It just runs contrary to everything that we've ever done. That's what Paul's saying here. And it's why Jesus is going to be so opposed in Mark chapter 7 to everything that we're going to hear about. So the question is still, how does Jesus engage them? Look at what he does. First, Jesus engages his culture by understanding the question. Here comes the question in verse 5. Background's been given, 1 through 4. Here's the question. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, this isn't the first time somebody's come to Jesus in Mark and asked the question that on its surface looks like curious, but underneath is actually an accusation. And we got to understand, there's going to be two ways we need to read this text, all right? One is, put yourself in the spot of the Pharisee. This is why I appreciated Mike's, Mike's prayer. Lord, the way you were working in the Pharisees' hearts, we just got to recognize our hearts kind of naturally crust over. Don't let the crust develop so hard so that my heart hardens to you and I, I get ignorant so that I put myself in the side of Jesus and I'm diagnosing everybody else out there. Having said that, there is a sense in which we need to ask the question of, what are we hearing from a world when they're asking questions? Are they asking a curious question, a real question, the kind of questions Jonathan and Megan are talking about as they're engaging with people? Or are we hearing the kind of questions that might be asked through the the vehicle that Jace is reading? Somebody who's asking a question, but it's either sarcastic or accusatory. Jesus in Mark uh, chapter 2, Here's another question, and it says, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You remember that moment? 
It was when Jesus was going to heal the paralytic and he knew that he had a crowd and they said, hmm, what's he going to do? Jesus knows what's going on inside him and says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? In other words, they didn't say it. They didn't have anything on their, on their forehead. He wasn't looking at their search history. He was just able to perceive what's going on because that was the somewhat incomparable nature of who Jesus is. We don't necessarily have this gift. But it is helpful to know that Jesus was never duped. This question that comes in verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He knows what's going on. John, John diagnoses it this way. Early on in his account about Jesus, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, here's what I find incredibly helpful. One, you can't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes at all. When you find yourself in the spot of a Pharisee trying to impress God with your rules, he sees through you. Just give up. Stop trying to impress him or trick him or figure out what's going on. You know, stop. He sees you. He knows you. And for a believer whose whole life is built on confession and transparency before God, this is a comforting thought. You don't have to impress him. He he sees them, he saw them, and he sees us today. But it also means that sometimes Jesus is, even though we don't possess all the same abilities that Jesus does, we're given some of the same capacity in our conversations with others. Paul regularly argues to the people he's talking to that it is dangerous to be able to live under and according to these kind of human traditions. He says it this bluntly in Colossians chapter 2. See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a helpful thing for us. I mean, I I realize we're just in one verse here, right? But it is helpful to recognize Jesus, and we're going to see it over and over, but Jesus gets what's going on even though he's presented with something that we might not be able to sort of understand. Jesus understands the questions that are there. He keeps going, obviously, in verse 6. And the second thing we see is that Jesus is then diagnosing their motives. He's understanding the question, and then he goes on and diagnoses the motive underneath that question. He said to them, okay, you got me. We didn't wash. Come on, guys. Take a pause. No, he doesn't even enter their question. Instead, he diagnoses the motive underneath it. He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus in verses 6, 7, 8 is basically saying what I was kind of getting at in the very beginning. God spoke. That was enough. We don't need the other explanation. Now, for parents of, you know, kids that maybe some are younger and some a little older, you may have had a moment where your firstborn tries to help you out a little bit. You ever been there? You're saying something to one kid, and the firstborn comes along with and just starts to echo. I see Josiah looking at Jace for some odd reason. I can't quite figure out 
why that might be happening at this moment. Hmm. But if the Lord is at work, Josiah, it's good for you to be able to see your spot in this sermon. Here's what I have to tell someone in my family sometimes. I don't need your help, bud. I'm good. I know how to parent. I know what's going on. I'm speaking to him. I don't need the echo. And I don't need the interruption. I don't need the assistance of my parental instruction to my very responsive son. Even though doing so maybe makes you feel a little bit better about yourself right now. I don't know. But you ever been there? All right, Megan's nodding. Megan's been there. If you have any question of what I'm talking about, go talk to Megan during the picnic. She'll tell you what it's like. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The father had spoken. He was enough. But that firstborn son was in there. And then the couch got the... Shut up! I'm good. I got this. I don't need your help. This is why Jesus is pointing back at Isaiah, because this isn't the first time in human history, the first time in Jewish history, that this has happened. In Isaiah 29, this is what he was diagnosing. Because this people draw with their mouth, draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, no, don't, don't hit the next slide. Thanks, Isaac. <laughs> what should come next? It should be that shut up moment, right? It should be that scolding, that anger, that frustration from the father. <laughs> Look at what Isaiah 29 says next. This is what I found amazing about this passage. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the, discerning, or the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. What, what an amazing response on God's part. He's trying to parent his kid. The pretend firstborn self-righteous Pharisees right there trying to just da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so what does God say? He says, man, I, I'm so tired of everything you're doing that doesn't lack or that lacks a real heart for me. So I'm going to amaze you at what I'm going to do. What a, what is just a grace-filled, mind-blowing passage to me. The God who could be so frustrated with my self-righteous rules, my attempt at always seeming superior to other people, could look at that and say, Darren, man, your heart is so far from me and all that. You're doing everything that looks right, but I just, I, I feel the drift inside of you, so I'm just going to amaze you at the wonderful things I can do. Now, Isaiah is in the past speaking this and looking ahead, not knowing how wonderful the arrival of Jesus really was going to be. And here's Jesus quoting Isaiah, saying, I wonder what that marvelous, wonderful thing is going to be. And here we are with the recipient of, as the recipients of that grace, the recipients of the gift of Jesus. And sorry to all of you at home, I think I just wandered into slides or whatever. So, I want you to do justice. Do you hear this in the Isaiah 1 passage that, that Sophia read? 
I want you to do justice. I'm so sick of your feasts. I'm so sick of this. So come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll wash them white as snow. Oh, good. Yeah, I know how to get white as snow. Now, you know nothing about cleaning yourself so you can be white as snow. You're just smearing your sins around. The only way to truly be forgiven, to truly be white, is that God would have done this. Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How? Have <laughs> forgiven all of our... Boy. Josiah, I know I took a shot at you before, but as the water boy, you've done a great job. Thank you, water boy. He's forgiven all our transgresses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's not just that he made us alive. It's that he made us free from all the laws that would have just led to our death over and over again. That's the system of the world. And it's also the system of all the spirits that are kind of infusing a world in rebellion against God. And Jesus canceled it all. Back to Mark 7. Jesus is saying to these hypocrites, and this is, Matthew and Luke use this word a lot. This is the first time. Mark's only going to use it one more time. This idea of hypocrisy is at the essence of what these people are doing, honoring God with their lips, with hearts that are far from him, worshiping him in vain because they're holding to commandments that people have come up with. So Jesus, here's a question. He understands it. He's able to diagnose the motives underneath it. And then lastly, verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And Moses said, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Jesus is pointing to the Old Testament and saying, this is what I've said. Hmm? Everybody's got it? But you say... That if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, and again, Peter through Mark to the Gentiles is kind of explaining that word, saying it's something that's given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So you get the guts of it? Honoring your father and mother in a society with no Medicare, with no Medicaid, with no Social Security, it's not just a job for the little kids. Ephesians 6 takes it to the little kids. But the main basis of it is, hey, take care of your folks when they can't take care of themselves. You honor them later in life by taking what you've saved up and you bring them in and you shelter them like they sheltered you when you were little and weak. Now that they're older and weak, you take care of them. That's the essence of the law. And if you don't do that, if you revile them that way, man, I take it so seriously. This is a matter of life and death. That's, that's God's law. The Pharisees had added something in that says, you know, all that money I've saved up. I've had some pretty successful years. I've got those barns that are full and I've got all this money. Mom, dad, I'd love to help you out. Here's the thing. I declared Corbin over that money. In other words, I put it in God's trust fund. It's for him. It's dedicated to God. 
Really? How are you going to use it? Yeah, don't really know. Um, but I've just got it locked away over there. It's kind of my 529. And we'll use it for God someday. I'd love to let you have some of the surplus out of my house. I'd love you to have access to that. But as you know, it belongs to God. You don't want to steal from God now, do you, mom and dad? Jesus is looking at you, you hypocrite. What are you doing? I told you what to do, and you came up with your religious way not to do it. We are brilliant at this, by the way. We know pretty clearly, pretty often, what God has said. And the fact that we find so many creative ways not to follow him is not worthy of applause. It's not just the only thing that they do. Our passage ends this way. And many such things you do. Now I said, I want us to take a look at this passage in two ways. One as Pharisees and two as those who are attacked by Pharisees. So we need to just ask the question first and foremost, are there things that we do that we do simply because we want to look and we want to sound, and we want to sort of come across as righteous, spiritual, Christian. We, we worry about our standing, even a little church like ours. We're worried about what people think of us, which is just utterly ridiculous when you think about it statistically speaking. But we're really worried about those things. Because you should hate that part of you. Because I think we've got enough evidence just looking at all these texts to say God really wants to kill that part of you. He wants to see it die because it's not of faith. It's of some other energy. That energy does not lead you to God, and it doesn't have a heart of worship underneath it. It's got to go. So this week, what we have to do, we have to ask the question, what is it that I'm doing where I'm mainly worried about just how I appear in front of other people? And I got to say, guys, this role that I've got in the church, this is just one of those sister sins for me. It's just always there. I can be... Uh, I'm usually pretty exhausted on a Sunday afternoon, but one of the things that oddly keeps me up is the fact that I said something stupid. Not, not the little many dumb things that I do, but the stuff where I said something and it was totally wrong and somebody could like email me back. It's like I want to preemptively send out the like, hey, I know I said this and I, I da, 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 just don't, 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 you know, what's that energy? It's nothing more than this. I care a lot about what you think about me. And that's not always, that actually, it's rarely ever good. If you're like me in that, guys, we've got to repent. We just, we can't continue that heart. Now, the good news is, if you're not quite there yet, and you haven't quite done the self, you know, sort of diagnosis, if you're not coming in like primed and ready for this text, good news is there's a part B next week. So we get to talk a little bit more about what defiles us next week. So don't worry, God doesn't have to do all the work in one week. But if you want to find a week to skip, because this is a little too uncomfortable, then yeah, don't skip. Show up next week. We got to keep thinking about this together. But to Jace's point, we live in a world of hypocrites that think that their rules are far better than, than what we've got. And frankly, sometimes they are, because sometimes our rules are just so comically ridiculous that I don't mind having those things knocked down. That's great. But understand this in terms of the, the age we're in and the age we're still walking into, probably with greater intensity. Jesus not only highlights uh, 
our own hypocrisy, um, but he does highlight the world's hypocrisy. Listen, listen to John 15, just a little part, but if there's anything of this that kind of resonates with you, I would just so encourage you. Go back and read John 14, 15, 16, 17. It's, it's, broad, it's Jesus' broad prayer and broad teaching to the disciples right before Gethsemane, right before his arrest. He just wants to let us know we're not alone. This is going to be really rough going forward. He really wants to let us know we're not alone. Listen to one little excerpt right there. He said, as if the world hates you, just know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you at its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. All right. Well, there's the benediction. No, keeps going. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I find the combination of those two things so helpful. Because I I, I do feel the sense of antagonism that I get from the world and that I have kind of against the world. I feel the sense that I am not moving in the same direction that you are. Now, I, I want to applaud the things that seem right, but I really don't want to be able to just be accused of being all in on everything the world's saying. It's why I've, I've used this phrase a number of times. I feel like much of what we hear lately is half-baked. It's, it's there, but oh, man, there's a lot of gooey parts, and you just sort of miss some stuff here, guys. That hatred would be so intimidating if we were alone. But we're not alone. And if you want to hear more, John 14, 15, 16, 17. I'm reading this out of order. But if we understand that God hates hypocrisy, just end with this verse from Matthew 7, and then I want to read to you from a book that I've really enjoyed um, and just uh, talk about a couple resources that I'll be sending out in the email. Jesus said, Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see a speck that's in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? That obsession with hand washing, the half-baked rules that this world is so like in love with. Jesus diagnoses it with the exact same word that he diagnoses our blind self-righteousness towards other sins. It's all hypocrisy, and he hates it all. And it's got to go. It's, it's got to go. But he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, but then hear this, hear this. Then you'll see clearly to take the log or the speck out of your brother's eye. The, the passage isn't just about our own repentance. It's in our own repentance for the sake of our witness. It's our own rejection of our own self-righteousness so we can present the gift of Jesus' righteousness instead. It's not that my rules are better. That's hypocrisy. It's that Jesus obliterated rules. That's grace. There's a book called Secular Creed. Our kids have been going through it actually this year. Not the exact same. They've been going through a a, a book by a, a separate um, or by the same author called Ted Questions Every Christian Needs to Be Able to Answer About What the World Thinks Today. And <laughs> it's a little more succinct than that, but it's the 10 questions book that we've been talking about all year long. But the same author is talking about the question of gender. 
And she's talking about the question of people who don't feel at home in their bodies, um, but feel like, um, feel like they want to, I guess it's just, just <laughs> they feel so unat home in their own bodies that they want to change permanently the nature of their body so that they're no longer the gender they were born with, the sex they were born with. Oh, that's, that's a painful spot for somebody to be in, isn't it? If you, if you don't feel that, just listen to this. I'm going to use some words. We don't have kids, so here we go. In 2018, a week before elective surgery, transgender woman Andrea Long Chu wrote one of the best-written New York Times columns I've ever read. In My New Vagina Won't Make Me Happy, and It Shouldn't Have To, Chu declared, until the day I die, my body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it will require regular painful attention to maintain. This is what I want, but there's no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. And then the author of the Secular Creed keeps writing, in mournfully evocative terms, Chu explained how little justice the definition of gender dysphoria, the distress some people feel at mismatch between their biological sex and the internal sense of gender does to the experience. Dysphoria, Chu writes, feels like being unable to get warm no matter how, no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like grieving with nothing to grieve. And then back to the author of... She says, I'm not much of a stereotypical woman. There have been times in my life when I felt an acute sense of failure of femininity, like a compulsory sport that I'm terrible at playing. Despite these glimmerings of empathy, I have felt in reading this article, my lack of understanding swell. Those of us who have not experienced gender dysphoria cannot really hope to grasp it. Sometimes we love people best by acknowledging that we don't understand. Most transgender activists tell happy ending stories, but Chu wrote of feeling more depressed and suicidal after taking hormones, of not expecting the same self-inflicted wound on the horizon to usher a new dawn of happiness, but of believing nonetheless that a, a transgender person's desire for surgery should not be denied. The article concludes, there are no good outcomes in transition. There are only people begging to be taken seriously. I don't know if I needed to read everything up to that last sentence, but I really wanted to read that last sentence. You may not agree with everything that this author puts forward, and I get it. But the reason I wanted to read it is because I wanted you to feel it. I wanted you to feel what I think I've been trying to say in this whole sermon. There's a sense that Rebecca McLaughlin, the, the author, feels our antagonism from the world. But something she also feels is the similarity that somebody who's broken has to her in her own brokenness. She's able to say at the very end, there's no good outcomes, but there's only people begging to be taken seriously. You know what doesn't take people seriously? Our own rules and our own hypocrisy. Do you know the best way to take a hurting world seriously? It's not to destroy them. It's to do exactly what Jesus did to understand the questions, try and diagnose the motives, and then to be able to engage where things are broken and be able to say, I don't see this working. 
but I know someone who's worked in my life and I hear the same ache and the same longing in yours and I just want to put him forward to you. Take apart my rules, it's okay. But Jesus and his word's gonna last forever. They're gonna go back out into this world and he's the one they need. And you know him. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are at work in a church full of hypocrites. You are at work in us when we would warm up to our own ideas and we would forget the heart of what it means to worship you and to respond to a world that's hurting like you did. I thank you that Jesus showcases the fact that you're never afraid. You hear the rebellion of the nations and you laugh. You hear our love affair with our own rules, and yet you enter in to make us amazed at what you continue to do. Lord, help us to be, as a church, less impressed with ourselves and more impressed with you. Help us to be, Lord, more empathetic to a world that's hurting, because you understand us having come down to take our place. Lord, I pray that we would be more like Jesus, to a world that desperately needs to know him. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, let's stand and let's pray. Um, or sorry, let's...